Welcome to The Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. Today, uh, it's the Global South edition of The Winnow, because we're talking about uh, a little different take on dining in the South and, and some of the global influences both today and in the past. Well, joining us today, we have Virginia Willis, a chef and cookbook author. Is that a good description? Uh, I know you've published six books, but your latest is just out now. That's Secrets of the Southern Table, a food lover's tour of the Global South. Yes, it? indeed. And that came out just like in May recently. May so it, 1. May it is 1 hot, hot off the press. Hot off the press. <laughs> well, I thought we'd start off just with that, the the subtitle, which is the Global South, mm-hmm. which is something that, you know, it's a term you've been hearing a lot lately about the South. But mm-hmm. how, do you, how, do you, how do you define the Global South? South, and what when you're you're doing a tour of the global South, what's different about that and the old concept of the South? Well, there's the the economic term global South, which is which is definitely not what I mean. Right. So I want to make that clear to begin with. Um, but I, I travel a lot, and I live part time in Massachusetts, and it sort of became apparent to me that people outside the South don't necessarily understand the South. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, they uh, I think there's a misperception that it's very homogenous, and if there's any diversity at all, it's only black and only white. Um, and then sadly, that often that we don't get along. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I started with this, and then. You know, I know that there are different um, cultures, different immigrant populations, both recent and from many years ago, from hundreds of years ago, that have affected Southern foodways. So that's what I mean by the global South, like looking at some of those populations that have affected Southern food. Well, it's interesting. You talk about in the book that you were exposed to multiple Souths at an early age, right? Yes. Do you want to talk about your background and kind of where you yeah, came up? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am from Augusta, Georgia, or actually right outside of Augusta, Georgia, Evans, Georgia. Um, grew up in Louisiana. Um, my family, so essentially my elementary school years were spent in Louisiana. Um, and that was tremendous, right? So I'm 51 years old. And when I was, so in the 70s, you know, I was going to crawfish boils and eating jambalaya and etouffee and all of that. And that wasn't happening back in Georgia. Um, and the, the, one of the things that I love the most about that is that my mom was a 20 something year old woman, moved out there with two baby kids and didn't know anybody. And so the way that she got to know her community was by cooking the food of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was exposed to that at early age and then moved back for junior high um, to South Georgia which is, of course, completely mm-hmm. different than even just Augusta, even that region. Which, where in South Georgia? Montezuma. Oh, Montezuma. The booming metropolis of Montezuma, <laughs> Georgia. And for those who, surely there's somebody out there who's never heard of it. Yeah. So where is Montezuma um, in relation so Jimmy, to? Yeah, Jimmy Carter was president during that time or before, right before that. So it was it's about 30 minutes from Plains. Okay. 30 minutes <laughs> yeah. from Plains. I know where that is. I think that's so interesting that your mother then started cooking the way her new neighbors yeah. did, because I feel like so many men or women would say, like they'd want their children to remember where they came from, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of like cook in the old ways. Well, she, um, so she did, mm-hmm. right? But she was a, my mom was a very, and still is a very adventurous cook. You mm-hmm. know, I was the kid taking crepes of champignon to school for lunch and mama would make egg rolls. And, wow. you know, so I, I get it honest, so yep. to speak. You yep. know, she's a really great cook. And, um, you know, we'd watch the PBS shows on Saturday and she'd cook Julia Child. And mm-hmm. um, so, uh, I only found that out a couple of years ago, and it really just it made me smile on the inside. Oh, that you watched those shows? Together? No, no, no. <laughs> that she, no, that she that she had intentionally done that. Like she oh. moved there and didn't really know anybody, mm-hmm. and started cooking that. So I, I found that really fascinating. Okay, yeah. oh, I, I thought maybe you'd forgotten no, Julia Child no, and all your French skills were no. just kind of innate. No. Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, it, one of the things, speaking in Louisiana and that part of it, some of the recipes in this book have an element of heat and of spice, yeah. um, some of which is newer, but some of obviously, when you talk about Louisiana, has been around right. for a while. Can you talk about how that figures into to some of these re- recipes? Yes. So I feel um, this book also, not only was I able to tell these stories, which which we'll I've talk about, I'm mm-hmm. sure, but part of it was also... Um, I love my previous books, and I feel like that they were almost a bit boxy, mm-hmm. or in retrospect, in comparison to this one, I would say. Right. So, um, yes, I love fried chicken and biscuits, but that's not all I eat. <laughs> that's not all I cook. Mm-hmm. That's not all what you eat or cook, you right. know. So it was fun. Just, just I like spice. I mean, I don't like it terribly hot. Mm-hmm. I'm not a, a complete chili head. Right. But um, it was it was fun to sort of um, to play around with the different spices that are in, like, Creole cooking, um, and then, you know, touching on the the Vietnamese and the Mexican mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other, and sort of bring those elements into recipes. I was curious, as I was looking at the book, how you, you went about the process of, of picking and, and creating the recipes. I saw a few of them you credited chefs, like uh, the, the chef at uh, Imperial Fez in Atlanta yeah. and to uh, Stephen Satterfield. But others that seemed like, were they your own creations? So they were, they're all you? actually my own creations, but they were inspired mm-hmm. by, if that makes any sense. So like Stephen, for example, has a dish at Miller Union in Atlanta called the Feta Snack, mm-hmm. and um, it comes with crudite. And so um, it's one of my favorite things to get at Miller Union. Um, I didn't like just completely ask him for the recipe, but, you know. Right, yeah, it does make clear in the book yeah, that it's inspired yeah, by it. So yeah, it's your yeah. take on that. So, um yeah, so just uh, just eating different places, eating different restaurants, different whether it's uh, white tablecloth chef mm-hmm. style or you know the hole in the wall, the stri- hole in the strip mall kind of restaurant where I'm taking, uh, tasting more um, uh, what would ethnic food. Because yeah. I was I was looking at some of the other ones like there's a Brussels sprouts with Benny seed coleslaw, uh-huh. and then there's a southern stir fry with turnip and greens, which I think is, you sort of associate with the Chinese families and, yes. and groceries. So I didn't know if that was a dishes you had somewhere or more like you found an ingredient like. Benny seeds or some of the Chinese grenades and then tried to, um, how can I incorporate that into a dish or, you know? It's a little bit of both, yeah. right? I mean, I think that obviously here in Charleston, you know, Benny seeds have become, you know, there's always been the Benny seed wafer, mm-hmm. but I mean, undoubtedly the Benny seed oil is now available and the work that Sean's done and Anson Mills has done and all of that. And Benny seeds have become um, more widely available. So that's, it's a little bit of a nod to the past. And at the same time, it's a, it's a nod to the present, it's true, because you you couldn't probably not have made that in 1985. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's I would almost say that that's one of my more chef driven recipes, mm-hmm. the Benny Seed coleslaw. Mm-hmm. But then um, there's also you have what's the recipe that John Martin Taylor is that a Benny recipe as well? Anyways, doesn't matter. Point being, um, there are a lot of people in this book, yeah. so I, it, it I mean it kind of reads like a scrapbook in a, in a nice way. Um, well, a long time ago, I lived in Charleston. And yeah. I met John T a thousand years ago. Yeah, and that was before I had started cooking and. You know, he is this larger than life figure, and he was really larger than life for twenty five year old Virginia. Yeah, and he had the, the when he had the store, mm-hmm. and it was this sort of salon that you know these fabulous people yeah. went for, to. And for folks who may not know, John, uh, John <laughs> Hop and John Taylor had yeah. uh, I guess it was called Hop and John's Books. Yeah. Right, it was a bookshop right on mm-hmm. in the heart of King Street, yep. and it was really truly a, sort of a southern culinary literary salon. Yeah, type no, it's fantastic. And I remember you know, and I, I mentioned it in the book. We you know he had a party one time, and Allen Ginsberg was there. <laughs> It was just like a very, very smoky party. <laughs> and um, I mean, you know, just being exposed to that in my 20s. And I can remember asking him, like, 
how do you get to do what you do? Mm-hmm. Like, I just right. remember being completely fascinated by that, mm-hmm. you know, him being a, a cookbook author and a, a food writer. Well, we're on the, the book topic because I'm trying to decide if I want to dive into Charleston or, or stick in <laughs> the book. We'll stick in the book for just a second because uh-huh. another thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm always fascinated by cookbooks and, and having tried to put some books together myself. The, the sequencing and then how you put the book together. I think in this case, you're going pretty much sort of thematic from – Gardens, grains, seafood, mm-hmm. so beef. So you have it sort of thematically ending with with desserts. But well, did, did that just come obvious? Like you want to do it that way, or did you think about other ways of grouping it? Because you could have done it by geography or other types um, of things. Or? That's that's in a way, it's typically the way that I divide most of my yeah. books. Um, however, I will say that it was super intentional for me to start with the gardening chapter mm-hmm. chapter rather um, in this book because I feel that. That is one of the key things about Southern food in general is that we have a 12-month growing season and something coming out of the ground or off a tree 12 months out of the year. So whereas some people may be like, you know, barbecue and, and bacon and pork and all of that, I feel like true Southern food starts in the garden. Yeah. And for me, that's actually I have the same the same association, and, yeah. and I don't I never know I, I don't think it's unique to me. I think there's a lot of people my age. I'm, I'm in my, my late forties, similar boat. Both my parents were gardeners, but right. my grandfather was a big gardener, and so I just associate having all this bounty of, of mm-hmm. fresh vegetables. And again, throughout much of the year, because it wasn't just yeah. he's from South Georgia as well, so it wasn't just. Uh, you know, these three months in summertime where you have fresh stuff on the And that's table. unusual. I mean, I think that we get spoiled by that. Yeah. You know, but there's a lot of the United States that doesn't have <laughs> that kind of lengthy growing season, much less 12 months, of, yeah. uh, nearly yeah. 12 months. Much less yeah, getting strawberries in January like we often do <laughs> right, here, right, here right. in Charleston. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was interesting, actually. I had off topic. I was just having a conversation. I was just up in Charlotte, and they had the, these oysters with strawberries on them. And it's so interesting to think about these other growing seasons extending now with the aquaculture that you're really eating raw oysters year-round. Oh, right, right. And, and, and raw oysters in Charlotte, North and Carolina. Raw oysters, I mean, that a, in, in, in and of itself is something to discuss. Yep. Right, exactly. <laughs> but but the idea now that you think about combining bounties that used to be separate on the calendar, it was, it was very interesting anyways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 So as um, the organization of the book is interesting, I'm always interested in what as well in sort of the um, how you get the book out and the promotional part. Mm-hmm. I'm curious in this book, which of the recipes you're out there demoing, which ones you're. Um, well, I've tried to think seasonally. So the book mm-hmm. came out May 1. So one of it was uh, one of the decisions in making the menus was um trying to entice people with recipes that they would use for the summer. Mm-hmm. So one of the most popular dishes that I've been doing quite a bit has actually been the tomato ginger green beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just bright and vibrant, and it tastes good warm, hot, cold. Yeah. Um, it's, it can be a, a, a hot side dish or a sort of room temperature salad. And, of course, you know, it's 100 degrees out there today. Right. Room temperature salads and cold <laughs> yeah. salads sound great. Right. Um, and it's just blanched green beans um, with sort of a tomato concasse with um, a shallot and ginger and garlic and jalapenos, mm-hmm. so there's a little bit yeah. more of that spice in there. Um, but what I've realized, which has been sort of fun and fascinating, um, as I've been teaching this this recipe for the past six weeks, people would you know raise their hand in class or ask at a book signing or something like, well, is there another vegetable I can use? And then it just made it, it just became so clear. Yeah. Well, yes, of course you yeah. could. You know, right. sort of any blanch. Because I mean, what I've been preaching with that one is that we all get into a vegetable rut. Mm-hmm. It's so easy. Right. You just like I mean, I know this past winter, it's like if I see another piece of roasted broccoli, I'm gonna <laughs> right. scream. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. But uh, this so that this sort of flavorful tomato sauce, and then in this in the book and Secrets of the Southern Taste. 
table, it's green beans, but of course we could put, you know, uh, blanched broccoli or, or grilled asparagus or something. Or, um, or one of the ideas that, that came to me when I was teaching the other day was just fresh sugar snap peas. You mm. wouldn't even have to blanch them. Oh, right. Just sort of fold oh. them into the warm to the warm um, tomato, and yeah. there you go. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah. Any other recipes you're encouraging folks to make first thing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, there's a recipe for spicy Asian Cajun shrimp, mm. and um, it's it's a, it's a delicious recipe, uh, It's and it's very indicative of what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I know that, I'm sure that you know, there's quite a few Vietnamese that are all along the Gulf of Mexico, mm. and so uh, several years ago I was... Uh, talking to Amy Cameron Evans with Southern Food, at the time with Southern Foodways Alliance. And I was going to Houston and I texted her and I said that I wanted to go eat crawfish mm-hmm. having grown mm-hmm. up in Louisiana. And she texted me back and said, um, Asian or Cajun? Mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> what? What is this? I, I just love yeah. how so much of this became reflexive for Houstonians before the rest of us had any know, idea, right? I know. So we went and ate, you know, Vietnamese crawfish. And of course, so what it is is like it's a typical Creole boil. But then on top of that, they they put ginger and garlic and lemongrass. And mm-hmm. it's, delicious. Ridicu- it's yeah. ridiculous. Right, 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 it's right. It's ridiculously good. And so it was just such a light bulb moment. So I adapted that recipe to use shrimp instead of mm-hmm. crawfish because it's more readily available for people. Mm-hmm. And then so at the same time, it sort of has this nod to uh, New Orleans barbecue shrimp, which is, mm-hmm. of course, not mm-hmm. barbecue or right. grilled at all. Right. It's butter poached shrimp. So, mm-hmm. um, And that dish has, uh, once again, garlic and ginger and jalapeno, right. uh, Creole seasoning, uh, fish sauce, uh, lemongrass, um, and it hot sauce. And it seems like it's going to be this, like, fiery bomb and it's mm-hmm. actually super well balanced right. and delicious and people have really been enjoying it. Right. And I think you talked about that there was sort of an epiphany for you there that not yeah. just the food itself but that everyone around you was really yeah. enjoying themselves and such a diverse group. That was super just really um, just a big moment for me in my life and for this book because I do sort of I've been considering like what is the South? What is Southern food? What are you know race relations? I mean everything. It, it all comes together at the table in my opinion and I have an, a really strong opinion that everything that we believe is reflected on the end of our fork. So your education, your religion, I mean, so yeah, many things sure. is reflected on what we yes. eat. So Amy and I were in this restaurant just eating this delicious food, and I look around, and there's, you know, uh, frat boys and a Mexican family and a Vietnamese family and church ladies, African-American church ladies, and roughnecks in from the oil well and cowboys, and it was like the U.N. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being in that moment and and thinking, this is the South. Right. Like, this is the South. Right, 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 right. Yeah, sort of in the, on that vein. One of my, I think, favorite lines of the of, of from the recipes I, I looked at is uh, in the pimento cheese recipe about uh, pimento cheese was never slathered on a burger, gobbled yeah. into cheese grits, or married with <laughs> barbecue pork. Um, <laughs> I was feeling a little sassy. I'll read the whole thing. Marrying a bunch of southern ingredients together doesn't make something extra southern. Mm. I would suggest that it creates a southern certified southern train wreck. Uh, <laughs> and I, I say bravo because I'm, I'm yeah. I believe the same thing. You can't just Lather a bunch of pimento cheese on something and make it southern. No, <laughs> no, it's like a couple. It's like when I wrote "Lighten Up Your Lighten Up Y'all" a couple years ago. It's mm-hmm. like I, my sort of point on that was, was I've never had bacon wrapped deep fat fried macaroni and cheese in my life. <laughs> that is not a real thing. There was this, this phase, right. yeah, when Southern you know? food sort of blew up about five, six yeah. years ago and became huge to national scene. That's what everyone would do. It's like let's take country ham and wrap something in bacon, put some pimento cheese on it, mm-hmm. stuff it inside a fried green tomato, right, and, right, and there. 
therefore it must be super Southern. But right. Um, so if, if that's not how you Southernize something, you know, in, in your mind, what what does what more characterizes the South rather than just deep frying and coating things with pimento cheese? So that's 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 part of the whole concept. Yeah, so read, right? read the book. Yeah. No. 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 But but Sean Brock wrote the forward, and he writes in that that the uh, the South is one million square miles. Yeah. So what is Southern food? You know, we all know that the food of coastal Carolina is different from the food of coastal Louisiana. Mm-hmm. You know, Texas is different from Tennessee. Heck, Georgia is different from Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, the, they're the two deep South states. So what is Southern food? That's that's sort of what I'm offering up here. It, it's it's very one-dimensional to judge it as just fried chicken and biscuits yeah. or pimento cheese on top of whatever. Um, you know, and... And so I, I'm putting out there that that these Vietnamese foods, these Mexican foods, these Indian, there's a huge Indian population in Atlanta. There's a huge Korean population in Atlanta. That's all Southern food too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's it, modern it, Southern food, right? But it does seem like you've isolated some of these through lines. That it's yes. not right. That it is the fresh ingredients or the people really enjoying their food. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there are others that come to mind. The sort of this was true 50 years ago and it's true now, even though right, right. we have different immigrant populations. Yeah, and 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 so. So, so like those storylines, you know, mm-hmm. if you, you think of like the you mentioned the turnip greens uh, with the with the Chinese turnip mm-hmm. greens sort of from Mississippi before. So those those cultures have definitely affected the local food ways. Mm-hmm. The Greeks in Birmingham, for example, there's a yeah. tremendous population of Greeks in Birmingham. There's mm-hmm. a gr- huge Greek festival every year. You know, Atlanta's only two hours away. And yet we still we don't have that. Right. right? And it's 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 because that circle of influence sort of it ebbs out mm-hmm. at the edges, you know. So but but. But where it existed, and the Greeks came over to work in the steel industry in the 1800s, where it existed, it still has impact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the interesting uh, – one of the interesting things that the Global South brings in is that I think there's a tendency for us – we talk, talk about the South to just try to fix everything as if it was always the same. Right. There is a, something mm-hmm. that has been Southern for 200 years or, or more, but there really isn't. It, it changes so much over time, and a lot of the the, the, dem, the demographics of the South, just in my lifetime, have changed incredibly, and our food has changed tremendously. Tremendously, yes, and indeed. It's you know, and that could be looked at as a, oh, we're, we're ruining tradition, but really there never really was that stable tradition. Right. The food in 1920 – was not like the food in 1870, which was not like the food in 1820. It has changed dramatically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, and I, there has been, I think, this sort of, um, you know, dewy-eyed grandmother yeah. uh, mm-hmm. bit that sort of <laughs> it's happened. A, it's the fried chicken and biscuits. Right. Yeah, kind and of it's thing. that, you know, but I really, I do believe like Southern food doesn't belong in a museum and it needs to change. And I, I'm a history major mm-hmm. and I love tradition. I'm a Capricorn, like I'm, <laughs> I am earth sign, super, you know, but I believe that, that change is... Change is not necessarily good or bad, but it's happening one way or the other, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and how some of these traditions that are that are influence, influencing the different foodways are incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so while we were talking about the structure, you know, an, another thing we were talking about that sort of way it's ordered and, and, and that type of thing. First, the, uh, the the pictures are incredible. It's, Angie it was yeah, Angie yeah, Mosier, such a good just job. beautiful photography without it within it. But there's also a lot of stories, which mm-hmm. is you know, it's not your typical recipe book where it's just recipe on each page and a picture on the other, another recipe, right. another recipe. So talk a little bit about wh- how you came up with that and sort of how you picked the stories to put to put in there. So Angie and I traveled to 11 states over the course of eight months, oh, four wow. seasons. Like we really, yeah. it was incre- it was truly incredible. And I learned so much about the South um, 
things I thought that I knew that I didn't really know, things that I had no idea about. I mean, it was really incredible from a super conservative, you know, red, hard, hardcore red farmer in South Louisiana talking to me mm-hmm. about climate change, which mm-hmm. I would have never <laughs> expected, you know, yeah. like, like it's happening. My, you know, it's happening um, to uh, being in Virginia and asking Diane Flint about, you know, her internet password. And she says, we don't have, we don't have internet here in this county. Mm -hmm. county. That was amazing. (laughs) So, but on a more positive note, what I wanted to do was to sort of present the unexpected. So if everyone's expecting fried chicken and biscuits and everyone's expecting only black and white people that don't get along, Mm -hmm. then what can I do to offer up the other? And that's where I sort of brought in stories about the different um, cultures that exist, Vietnamese in Texas, uh, Oaxacans in in Lexington, um, some of the older, uh, I did a story about um, uh, muddy pond sorghum from Tennessee. So some older traditions, um, there's two stories per chapter that hopefully just paint um, or this a portrait of the, the diversity of what's in the South. Um, and the two stories that I start with are in the gardening chapter, um, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, whose family farm was founded when his ancestor returned home from fighting for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew Rayford, whose family farm was founded when his ancestor was emancipated from mm-hmm. slavery. So those two, those two stories are sort of the, the key mm-hmm. keystones. Yeah, and, and, neither, and, and both of them are interesting because neither, neither of them have just—, just Kept kept on keeping on farming the same way as their right, you know, right. their, their, their their parents. I think uh, Matthew Ray, Rayford went. And he's a classically trained chef yes. and, and all that. And he went back to the land. Yeah. Whereas Will Harris was always raised as a farmer, but he turned totally turned his back on the old the or the new industrial agricultural methods right. and tried to go back and do right. older other methods. So both really interesting figures. And yeah, I, I um. It was it's, it was fascinating to get to meet so many different people and to, to just to, to see the different places and um, and I did sort of wind up in, in in certain situations you know there's obvious like the seafood chapter there's mm-hmm. going to be Florida seafood or whatever you know or you know Clamor Dave from from local um, from nearby uh, but then I got to this point that so the average farmer in the South is a 57 year old white male. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to, I don't have anything against 57 year old white men, but I didn't want that to be my example. You know, I wanted it to be something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of backed myself in a corner of speaking of the, 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 the story from Virginia. Um, I needed a, I needed either an African-American fruit farmer or a female <laughs> fruit farmer. And then, of course, it's not enough for someone just to have like a peach tree in their yard. Right? They, it has to be a story. Right. It has to be something to write about. There has to be something, you know, something to comment on. And so that's what took us to Virginia and Diane Flint with Foggy Ridge Cider. And I think that's a good example of what Diane Flint's doing because, you know, she, she went back and, and really helped – revitalize these old varieties of apples that yeah. had all but disappeared, these old cider apples. And it's an example, I think, of what used to be this this very Southern thing, the cider-making yeah. tradition that was almost lost. And we're, we're starting to regain a lot of that yeah. stuff because people are, are – t- they're not just – they're taking an interest in in really understanding the past and then seeing what that we can do with that today, which yeah. I think is fascinating. Well, I do want to ask while we, you know, while we have you here, so uh, about not just a book, but a few other uh-huh. other topics in, in particular. I know that you, um, you maybe we talk set up by talking about how you got to sort of where you are today. We, you talked about growing up in Louisiana and uh-huh. Georgia, and then I know you went to UGA and ended up here in Charleston after right after graduation. College, yeah, it was and, in where the first place I lived. So you're talking about bouncing around here, I think, meeting a lot of folks. Um, but then you ended up going to culinary school. Is uh-huh. that right? How did they go from 
Well, so I actually used to be the uh, assistant manager at Rangoni here. (laughs) uh, Yes. So uh, I was in retail management. Yeah. Hurricane Hugo hit. Okay, need to leave. Um, We literally were living in a laundry room for a period of time. And then it was like, okay, let's go back to Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) And wound up in retail management. And I just, I, um, I, I was so unhappy. And I thought, I can't be this way. This can't be life. I don't want to do this. And I'd always loved to cook. I'd loved to cook since I was a child. Mm-hmm. And I actually had looked at going to school here, and I, I can't remember what what happened that I didn't, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and went to culinary school. Uh, my first job cooking was cooking on Natalie Dupree's TV show in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. So that was my first experience, was working for her as an apprentice. And, of course, Natalie's a dear friend and, and my mentor still. Um, and she sort of... I worked for her for free for a year. Oh. Kept my job working at Riches. Working it was Riches yeah. re- working in retail at the time. Kept my job. That's oh, right, because at that point she was running the cooking school at Riches department. Or was that, uh, that, that was, different that was time? Oh, that was pre me. Yeah. Okay. Um, but she uh, she had series on PBS. So I met her through a friend through a friend. Asked her if I could come. Started apprentice on her TV show. Then after the show ended, asked her if I could come. And then that uh, the solid year worked on my days off for her testing recipes. And then she sort of ushered me off to culinary school. <laughs> Um, and then, and then I wound up in France. Yeah. So you you trained in classical French technique, right? Yeah. In culinary school, and um, then in both uh, in both l'Académie de Cuisine, which is the, at the time in the DC area, and then also at École de Cuisine Laverin in um, Burgundy, France. And I know that after, what I was trying to get to get to next, which is to ask you about. It, I know you ended up back in New York working in food television yeah. <laughs> as a, I guess a kitchen director for Bobby Flay and then mm-hmm. Martha Stewart yep. living. And I just want to ask about that because I I just don't know. I know very little. I mean, I see the shows, but I don't really know what. The, what the kitchen, kitchen director, director does do. behind the scenes. So the kitchen director is the per- it's the chef. It's the person yeah. who is in charge of all the food on the show. So if there's a salt, if there's a bowl of salt to the left of the stovetop, someone had to make sure it was there. If there's beautiful, perfect <laughs> cookies coming out of the oven, <laughs> someone had to make sure that was there. So I didn't necessarily cook everything, but I had to make sure that the ingredients were in house and that you know that. And I would work with the producers to. Um, to create like the swap outs and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously something cooks three hours. We're not going to sit there and watch it. That's always where there's a second uh, yeah, oven. And here the, it is. Yeah, yeah there's the, the, the quote unquote <laughs> magic of television. Um, but one thing that was interesting when I worked for Martha specifically was that the ingredients were so important that it was, even as the, the you know, the chef of that yeah. kitchen, it, I was the one doing the grocery shopping. So I was. Oh, wow. I was That's what I asked about yeah. like, you know, how much does the, the personality, the, the, the for a star, determine the recipes and the ingredients, all that, and how much is that a collaboration, or how does? It? Well, as you can well imagine, Martha's she's um, a little very busy. Hands on. No, she's <laughs> very, very hands on. on. She's hands on. She's very hands yeah, on. Okay. Yeah, she's very hands on. So, um, if there was a recipe uh, that she was going to demonstrate on television, then she oh. she approved it. Okay, so she was very yeah, much she approved it, and so reason. and then to that same extent, um, if she was cooking with something then the ingredients had to be perfect, which is why I was the one at the Union Square mm. Farmer's Market, oh, okay. you know, elbow to elbow with the yeah. restaurant chefs in the morning being like, no, those are my <laughs> pears. Those are my <laughs> pears, you know. That one has a spot on. Yeah, you can yeah, have you that can one. Have that, one. Um, uh, that was fascinating. I love, love working on food television. I really do. I had to ask, your, your PR folks uh, put this in, in some something I was reading, one of the press releases, has made chocolate chip cookies with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, <laughs> which I uh, ca- capture my eyes. So I had to ask. But then they all explain what the <laughs> How did you he go about a, making cookies a, with a, The Rock? He was a guest on the show that I was working <laughs> oh, on. Okay. So it was like, you know, he was in the kitchen making cookies. <laughs> Can he make cookies? Yeah, he made chocolate chip cookies, and uh, he was a really nice guy. Was that his idea or your idea? Uh 
His idea. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's truly really multi-talented. Yeah. 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 So yeah. He's a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're still on this book book tour uh-huh. and, and still finishing this one. This is your sixth book. Um, and, and you may have the same problem. I have this this problem a lot. If somebody writes about food and it's like, wait, what's what what's right about next with Southern food? We were run out of mm. of of things. I know I've already said that the South food culture changes, but do you have that trouble with like recipes and 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 doing new books of of trying to come up with something different, or do things just sort of fall in place that naturally there's always something new to write about? I think there's always something new to write. My yeah. bo- my books are super personal. I mean, they're I, I write every recipe, I test every recipe, I work with the Angie on the photography for every recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, if I have someone test one of my recipes, um, it's because I feel like I'm too close to it. I want to make sure that I'm mm-hmm. not overlooking something. Um, you know, there are different approaches to creating cookbooks. Some people put together these big teams and stuff, but for me, it's super personal and hands-on. So it happens very organically. Yeah. It happens very, and I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a businesswoman too, so I have to sort of think about what might make sense. Yeah, and you have to think about marketing and then yeah. what's going to appeal to yeah. the, the, the current sort um, of uh, times and what people are interested yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, you know, one of my favorite books was Basic to Brilliant. It was my second book, and it, it was more chef-driven, and it it, it it bombed. No one bought that book. And it wasn't what readers, my readers at yeah. least, want from me. So what? why, in what way? Um, it just didn't sell well, but that book, so that book was titled Basic to Brilliant, and mm-hmm. it was a basic recipe, just a simple basic recipe that someone can do. And at the end of every recipe, I had a paragraph on mm-hmm. how when someone can make it a little bit more chef-inspired. Right. And some of the, the tricks were uh, more complex than others, but basically everything was like a paragraph. Mm-hmm. And it could be, it was something as simple as kale frittata or kale frittata baked in a bowl. Uh, right. <laughs> but it wasn't like crazy, super yeah. crazy. Although there were some things that were a little bit more involved, mm-hmm. but it it between the, I guess, the timing and my audience, mm-hmm. it wasn't an appropriate book. So, um, so that was a life lesson, right? I mean, we're, you know, having a product like this, it, it's not just like, oh, I think I'll make a book. Uh-huh, right. You know, I mean, it's just not that simple because it has to be approved by agency. It has yeah. to be approved by a publishing company. You know, there has to be interest in it. I'm going to draw you on that more. So what did you learn about your audience and learning that that was not for them? It, was it... So I think it's, um, you know, people want accessibility. Mm-hmm. People really want accessibility. Now, if someone is picking up a book by, um, you know, uh, a, a famous chef, mm-hmm. restaurateur mm-hmm. chef, then that book is completely different. I mean, right. I would draw the analogy to like the newspaper, yeah. right? Someone that's reading the newspaper column is not going to be the same person that's reading like art culinaire. Sure. Right? right. So it's the same sort right. of thing. So it's like accessibility, um, ingredients that are readily available. Um, and this is all ages. Mm-hmm. And then I think that if you look towards younger audiences, like millennial, the direction that I'm getting from that is super, super simple. Right. Yet very authentic, which mm-hmm. is not they don't always go. Yeah, that's hand not necessarily yeah, easy. That's interesting. Hand hand, that's really know? interesting. So it's just like you know, it's just like I, th- I love the process of making a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for this for for Secrets of the Southern Table, for example, we shot the heroes, and so my whole point was to try to share different races, different ages, different sexes, different you know everything to make it as diverse as possible. So to that same end, when Angie and I were shooting the heroes, we put the the beauty shots up on the wall. And I made sure that 
all of the primary colors are represented in mm. every chapter. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. It's a, yeah. <laughs> I, get a little, I get a little OCD and stuff like this, <laughs> no. but I think it. I think it shows in the end, or at least yeah. it shows to me. No, I think it. I, I think it does show when someone's put a lot of thought yeah. into a book and how it's laid out, as opposed to just throwing a bunch of stuff together. Yeah. Um, it, it really shows through. And at, at, at the end of the day, I think it's what, what people want is like they want pretty pictures, mm-hmm. they want um, accessible recipes. Um, and and people be, uh, people have gotten really spoiled about the photographs because of uh, the internet, yeah. and right. people want step by step as much as possible. Yep. Um, and and it's expensive to have in a book, but it's becoming more and more possible. I think mm. in the step by step photographs, you mean? It yeah, runs I think, yeah. more. Yeah, process. Yeah, yeah we're into the age where yes. you can go, and not only photos, but you can get the videos where you can just sort right. of watch somebody in sort of time-lapse kind of yeah. approach. Well, it's so funny because um, I've been able to go to lots of different places to do um, to do videos. So, uh, you know, I was at the test kitchens at Martha Stewart and Family Circle mm-hmm. and um, Food and Wine, all these different places. And, you know, here I have this book like, oh, look, Southern food is more <laughs> than chicken and biscuits. And absolutely everybody wants me to make biscuits. That's what they want you to make. Which is fine because yeah. I love making biscuits and I think people mean more biscuits in their life. But right, it, it right. has been sort of it has been sort of amusing That's to me. That's funny. But I mean, you do have biscuits on the couch. Biscuits on my cover. You know your audience. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> Everybody loves biscuits. Everybody yeah. loves biscuits. <laughs> well, Virginia, thanks so much for, for joining us. And, oh, yeah, and, it's great uh, to be here. I know you are get to spend some time here in Charleston. I hope you get to enjoy some of the, the great restaurants and, and food here and Indeed. try to stay out of the heat a little bit because <laughs> it is definitely hot right now. Awesome. Thanks, Virginia. Oh, thank you so much. So once again, that book, it's The Secrets of the Southern Table, A Food Lover's Tour of the Global South. That's available wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. People can check out my website, too. It's virginiawills.com. Great. Well, thanks Great. so much. Thank you. That is all for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the not suitable for television podcasting <laughs> studios at the Post and Courier building definitely in not, downtown Charleston, not, not South Carolina. T- if you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producer today was the global southerner, J. Emery Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat. <laughs>